Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to tell you the case of Aaron Hedges. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more crime over coffee content by signing up for our patreon you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content to check out this opportunity and sign up for the crime over coffee patreon visit www.patreon.com slash crime over coffee pod thank you again for all of your support the case i'm going to tell you about today takes place in montana in a island chain of mountains um, along the Yellowstone River known as the Crazy Mountains in Sweetgrass County. This mountain range is known to be a little rugged. There's cliffs, a stream, like I mentioned, a river, also a lot of deer, elk, and there are some black bears there. There have been reports of maybe some mountain lions as well, but for the most part, the big reason people go to these mountains is to hunt deer and elk. I actually found this case because I watched a really good documentary this weekend. I'm sure most of you have heard of the Missing 411 series with David Pauldes. It's pretty popular and it's definitely one I'm very interested in because it focuses around people who disappear in national and state parks in the wilderness. And as you all know, especially if you are a longtime listener, that kind of stuff fascinates me because it's so insane and it's hard to really it's hard to really even come up with rational explanations for so many of the disappearances. And as I mentioned, it was from a Missing 411 documentary. It was the documentary that is about specifically hunters that go into the mountains that are known to have experience in the wilderness, oftentimes have weapons with them, have camping gear, or are very knowledgeable of the area that they're in. And that always raises so many more questions when they go missing because in theory, they're prepared to handle a, a stressful situation or them getting hurt or X, Y, and Z because they've just got so much experience in the wilderness. As I mentioned, our story takes place in Montana. Um, there was a town nearby the Crazy Mountains and the main access point and it's called Big Timber. On September 3rd, 2014, 38-year-old Aaron Hedges and two of his friends, Greg Leitner and Joe DePue, it might be pronounced Leitner, I'm not sure, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize for that, but they head up to the Crazy Mountains and they're going to go camp and hunt. And with them, they have their camping gear, bows, guns. They also have two horses and a mule with them to help carry some of their stuff. It's an area that they have frequented before. They'd been there multiple times and they're going up for a week long at this point. It seems like they're pretty well prepared for this trip, which if they've made it multiple times, then I'm sure they know what to bring or what not to bring at this point. Yeah, it's reported and pretty well known that all three of these men were really familiar with the area and they had done this multiple times. 
um, so much so that they actually have caches in the area where they are hiking with additional supplies should they need them. So they leave on September 3rd, which is a Thursday around 11 a.m., and they park in the designated parking area and begin to hike up to their location, which would be near Campfire Lake, which wasn't too far away from the parking area, but still was a hike. And on their way up there, supposedly, the mule who was carrying um, Aaron's camping equipment got spooked and kind of threw out a bunch of his stuff, like bucked it all off basically. And somehow in this whole mix, Aaron loses his sleeping bag. And this will come up later in the story. Do we know what spooked the mule? I don't think it's really reported. It's probably just, I don't know, some animal or snake. Like a snake or something. Okay. Okay. Nothing major. I guess we could probably go down a rabbit hole with that and say it could be something spookier. We all know I'm a big fan of Bigfoot, so I'm going to say it was Bigfoot. <laughs> we'll just roll with it was that. Probably, yeah, we'll go with that. But all three men make it up to the camp, and they set up shop, and they're hanging out by Campfire Lake for two days at this point. And on September 5th in the morning, Aaron says, you know what, I'm going to hike up to the cache and get some equipment notably um, a sleeping bag that had been stored up there because as we know he he had supposedly lost his sleeping bag and this hike is a little ways up he would be going northwest basically from their point it wasn't too extensive it was a hike that would have taken a while but he should have been able to get there and back before it was nighttime at 10 a.m he starts up going to the cache and at this point, he has with him his book bag, his walkie-talkie, um, one that he can use to communicate with the other men, his cell phone. He also has um, a firearm and a bow with him and some other basic supplies, water, granola bars, lighter, your basic you know, hiking, camping supplies. For a little bit of context, for Aaron to get up to this cache, he was going to go northeast and there was a fork in the trail. And at that fork, he would turn and end up going northwest. And that was going to take him to the cache. And then that northeast fork was away from the camp and away from really where they were planning on being for this trip. And at some point in the day, he radios them and had apparently missed the trail and was going to come back and go to camp. And at this point, I guess on the walkie-talkies they had, you could see GPS of where the person you were talking to was, which is such a good idea. And they can confirm that he is a little ways off on that fork, the direction he was not supposed to go. Presumably, I don't know if this was before or after, he had made it to the cache. That's something I couldn't find. It never came up in the documentary. I was to whether or not he made it there. The GPS tracking on the walkie-talkies, though, is a very neat addition. At this point, the weather was fairly warm. It was in the 40s or 50s degrees. It was clear. There was really no reason that the trail would have been covered. So it's a little bit odd that Aaron had missed this trail turn because as I'd mentioned, they'd done this hike before, this camp before, they'd been up there multiple times. So it was it was very odd that he missed it. Additionally, something else that is odd about him missing this, this spot in the trail is that the trail ran along a creek that runs one direction. And so again, it's something that Aaron 
would have known which way the creek was going and which way that would mean he was supposed to go to get back to his camp. However, somehow something happens and he's going the wrong way. I'm really confused as to where this is going. I'm more just confused, like, why he's so confused or seems to be confused. Yeah, I'm, I think that is really such a big piece of this case and why it's so odd to people. And, you know, it strikes people as such a strange one because presumably Aaron knew where he was and he should have been able to find his way back. So it's very odd that he were to miss that fork in the trail and go the wrong way. At this point, we know that Aaron has maybe missed his turn, and while his friends are waiting on him, they're trying to radio him and get in touch with him, and they can't. And at this point, they basically don't hear from him again. They wait in this area, um, the camp area, for him to come back, hoping that maybe he just like went way off and he would find his way back, or he got distracted by something, or X, Y, and Z, but... His friends are waiting at the camp for him to come back for about a day. And when he doesn't arrive, they're like, okay, we need to go look for him. And so they go head up that way and they're looking for Aaron and they just find no sign of him. And on September 7th, two days after Aaron had went off to go to the cache, a storm rolls in. And it's when this happens that the friends decide, okay, we can't keep looking. We're going to go back. And they head back down to the parking area and they end up calling Christine, who is Aaron's wife, who contacts the Sweetgrass County Sheriff's Office. And this is there's some mixed mixed reports of when this happens. Um, There's an article written shortly ish after Aaron had disappeared, and it said that Christine notified the sheriff's office on the 10th, but in the documentary, they make it seem like when the friends come back on the 7th, that that's when the sheriff's office is contacted. So I'm not sure exactly on that timeline. But as I mentioned, a storm was coming in and it ends up dropping in temperatures to the teens and it ends up snowing 18 to 24 inches in just 12 hours, which is obviously not ideal if Aaron is lost in this area. Yeah, that's not looking too good for him at the moment. Also, that's a lot of snow in a short period of time. Did he have anything with him that would have been able to help keep him warm in in the middle of the night? My guess is that he likely didn't have winter gear with him, but... I do know that he had a lighter in his backpack, and I know he had boots on at some point, but I'm not sure that he likely had the supplies with him to handle that kind of snow and that kind of temperature. Now that I've mentioned one of the discrepancies, there was, as I mentioned, the documentary I watched where they had Alan Ronenberg, the undersheriff for Sweetgrass County Sheriff's Office, who gave a lot of the information for the documentary. The article I mentioned earlier is one that I found where a, I'm pretty sure it was a newspaper, local newspaper, had interviewed a sheriff from Park County, which was adjacent to Sweetgrass County. And the line for it actually went basically right through where the cache was and where the fork in the trail was. So both counties were involved with this investigation. But that's where some of the discrepancies are coming up. 
and some more will come up a little bit later but both accounts are from sheriffs so i guess take that as you will i will say in the documentary it seemed like the officer they were talking to was trying to recall some information that he wasn't 100 percent confident on so he kind of stopped and go i don't think i don't recall so maybe he was just forgetting some of these these smaller items anyway as you can imagine they do start a search in the area for Aaron. Um, There is a lot of snow, but it's starting to melt because it only ended up snowing for about 12 hours. And they bring in dog teams, horse teams, just do some search grids. It's not, from what I gathered, super organized, but it's organized enough that they know which areas they're covering. The first day they're out looking, they don't find anything. And then the next day they come in and one of the dogs found a pair of boots. So this was on September 9th. And what's odd about this is the boots were found even further away from that GPS ping that was off on that fork. And what they say about the boots is it looks like someone untied them and took them off and purposefully sat them there. What's odd about this is one, it was presumably snowing. Two, the terrain there is very rugged. They mentioned that you really want some gripping boots so that you don't slip on the loose rock because it is a cliff down into the stream. Not to mention that you would probably cut up your feet pretty bad. Were they able to determine if the boots belonged to Aaron? I believe it appeared and they looked at it as that they were Aaron's boots. Along with the boots, a little ways away, they found a water bladder, like that, like a camelback water holder thing, a fire pit, and a partially burned cigarette container. And it was a brand that they knew Aaron smoked. And there is also a partially burnt fire bundle and two waist belts from like a book bag that had been cut off. And according to the sheriff in the documentary, he said, It's possible that Aaron would have done that because the straps had padding for so it's not rubbing as much. And because it had padding, it could have been used maybe as like insulation for his hands or his fingers. If it well, we know it was cold, but if he was cold, that possibly could be why he cut them off. So to me, all of this stuff that they found gives a good suggestion, I guess, that he could have survived that night. Correct. Something odd about it, though, the area they found all this stuff, they were just at the day before and nothing was there. Interesting. Now I have more questions. Yes. I mean, I think initially they thought maybe he wasn't there when they looked. And then when they came back the next day, like at some point, maybe that night, Aaron had made his way over there. But it's still it's odd because they They really don't think that the people who were searching just missed it because they were trained and they know that they looked in that area. So they they don't think they would have just missed it. So it begs the question of whether he came back and that's why I was there or if it was placed there. Oh, that's a good point. You'd almost think that if he had gone back there, he would have potentially have been found at that point because he was in an area that they were searching One of their theories at this point, and I'm glad you said that, is because they were thinking potentially he was just 
suffering from hypothermia. And it, as we know from cases we've covered and we've discussed it, when you are hypothermic, it kind of can make you do these crazy things. One of which would be taking off articles of clothing because your body is making you feel like you're hot, but you're actually freezing. And maybe he was disoriented because of this and wouldn't have stayed in the area or was wandering around and really couldn't get his bearings, which if he couldn't get them a couple days ago when it was 50 degrees, it's not surprising. And they continue to search the area and they search around this area for a few weeks up until September 22nd. And they had a total of 60 ground searchers 20 canine teams and two helicopters and they find no sign of Aaron other than the little the boot area that they had found just a few weeks prior so I have a question that I just thought of and you may not have the answer to this but the walkie-talkies that had the GPS location on them could you only see that actively as the other person was talking or could you see it when they weren't talking as well. It was when you radioed them, you could see it, it would ping. When he talked into it to them, it pinged so they could see his location and then they couldn't get a hold of him again. Okay, cause, well, cause I was like, could he have seen their location and tried to follow it back or could they have seen that spot? I wasn't sure if it had like stayed on there, like, or if it only showed it for a second and then it was gone. I would assume he would have saw it, but I don't, I have no idea. I don't know how, I don't know the details of how the radio worked. Um, they didn't mention anything like that in the documentary. So I'm gonna guess, I don't know, actually, I'm not even gonna guess on that one. Uh, maybe someone listening can look it up and let us know if you'd like, but, cause they do in the documentary mention what kind of radio it is. But I think the overarching theme with it is, in theory, Aaron knew how to get back anyway. He'd done this hike multiple times. He knew all the the signs like the stream flowing a certain way and the fork in the trail. And so for me, it's like he was already missing everything. I'm not surprised that he's not following the GPS the way he's supposed to if that were the case. But as I mentioned, at this point, there is no sign of Aaron. We now don't have anything new come up until June 22nd, 2015 couple Rebecca and Charlie Rain who lived a few miles handful of miles away from the crazy mountains and owned quite a bit of land there were working on their fences they do like an annual check of all the fencing along their property and they had Rebecca's father Roger Roger Beslanowicz with them and at some point basically Roger goes to drop off Charlie at the top of a ridge to kind of check a fence up there. And Charlie's like, it's really, it's really steep. It's going to take me a while. If you want, you could, you know, go hike around and look at it. It's a really pretty view. Go check it out. And this account is from Roger himself. And as he's up on a ridge, he sees something bright orange. And he recognizes it pretty instantly as an orange vest, a hunter's vest. And he says he initially was like, oh, a bear got somebody. And so he walks over and checks it out. And he picks up a backpack. And inside of it is a wallet. 
and inside the wallet is both a driver's license and a hunting license that belongs to Aaron Hedges. And he said at this point, like I mentioned, he thought maybe a bear got somebody. And he gets a hold of Charlie and he goes, did someone go missing here? And Charlie's like, yeah. And he's like, is basically, is this him? And Charlie's like, yeah. And Charlie and Rebecca had known about Aaron going missing because it was one big news for that small area. And two, because of where they lived in their land, they saw the search helicopters. And when the search was going on, they, they knew about it. The backpack, something odd about it, it had been sitting up against a tree like someone had sat it there. It also in it had some snack bars and a lighter. And according to Roger, there was also a bow, socks, shirts, sweatpants, and a vest there. And that the backpack had holes in it. And as I mentioned, there was some um, snack bars or granola bars as well. This is one of those discrepancies that I mentioned earlier because in the documentary, the sheriff says that there are no socks and no pants found. So that's very different. <laughs> it's always the weirdest little discrepancies that yeah. you, you see in these things. Additionally, nearby, propped up on a rock, was a cup and thermos, as well as an open energy drink. Like somebody had been sitting on the rock and was having a drink. And... Interestingly, even more, from that area, you could see a road and you could see some buildings, like, over towards the town. So whoever was there could have gotten into town if they wanted to. In theory, they would have, yeah, in theory, they would have seen that and been able to get there. It's also just a few miles away or a couple miles away from um, their house, the ranch house as well. And again, authorities kind of look around, but they, they don't find anything else. Did Charlie and Rebecca ever report seeing anything odd since it was closer to their house? No, they never reported anything else. They are featured on the documentary kind of retelling the situation and what happened that day when they found the items or Roger found the items, I guess. Something that Rebecca was mentioning was odd and it's something I saw a lot in comments and responses to this case is that if he already had a gun on him, why was he still walking around carrying his bow? I guess it would have been really heavy, and it seems odd that he would have kept lugging it around. I That'll come up again later, too, when I talk about um, some of the theories a little bit more. And we don't hear anything new until August 8th, 2016. And now at this point, this is 23 months after Aaron had disappeared. Apparently, nearby was a dude ranch, and some of the guests at this ranch were on a ride, I assume a horse ride, and had come up a hill nearby and found a skull. And so, obviously, they contact authorities, and authorities come out and find a skull, a pelvis, and a femur, as well as Aaron's cell phone and a jacket. None of the, none of the remains found were injured in any way, and because of this, there's no cause of death ruled. I assume the remains were then connected to Aaron? Yes, they were identified as Aaron's remains. The remains were found directly north from where the backpack was found just a, about a year prior. 
and and it was so close it was about a half a mile from where his bag was found which is really odd because again you think they would have come across him in that area now just for context as i mentioned um you get to that fork and you kind of veer off east and basically he just kept going east assuming he is the one who's dropping his belongings on the way and at this point where his remains are found it's 11 air miles from camp it's a little bit more with the terrain but 11 straight miles and six miles from where the boots were found and as I mentioned, about a half mile from the book bag. And it all just kept going east, a little northeast a little bit. It does almost kind of go along with the theory that you talked about earlier with him having hypothermia and just like walking around kind of dropping it, dropping his clothing. I'm assuming if we go with that, and I don't know if you're ready to get into theories yet, but if we went with that, then he might have been walking along looking for camp or presumably and just dropping his clothing as he was walking along. Right. I think what's odd about the hypothermia theory is that most of the people they talk to and, you know, Rebecca made a appearance on the documentary and she's actually a nurse. They're talking about how weird it would be if he had hypothermia that he would have made it that far and kept going that far. Typically, you would think they would try to like huddle up somewhere for warmth instead of keep going through all of it. And the thing with hypothermia is that people just can react so wildly and different that it's hard to even gauge. It's like we always talk about like people's responses to stressful situations. It's hard to really be like, oh, that was the correct response or it wasn't because everyone acts different. And I think that is another reason why the hypothermia thing, it's hard to just absolutely say that's what it was. And again, they think it's weird that if he had that, like he, that he would still be carrying his bow. But again, you're not in the right set of mind. So he might have just thought it was good to bring any sort of protection that he could with him. And so he was like, I'm just going to carry it for as long as I can, along with the gun. Right. Well, and, you know, like I, I've mentioned, there's so many weird things within this case. And I think one is that he kept obviously we talked about it up front. The fact that he would have gone the wrong way because he knew that area and kept going the wrong way. Two, in the backpack, they found uneaten granola bars. The creek was right near him, so there was fresh water. So it's weird that he would have left his food source right there. And he clearly had a water source. So it's just, especially when he could see a road from where he was. Unless he went to the road and came back which would have been kind of wild to do. He never even tried to go to the road because his remains were found just right up about a half a mile away from where he would have been able to see the road. It seems like his mindset throughout this whole thing, since he basically got to that area, was just kind of not in the right space, I guess. He wasn't thinking mm-hmm. appropriately, or did he? do we know if there was any sort of head trauma that he had? I know you said the skull wasn't damaged, but like, prior to them going there was there any random things that anybody i assume not not that was ever reported presumably this there was nothing that was precursory that would have been an issue that would have like caused or explained any of this i will mention another theory that i saw a lot of when i was reading um, comments and people's responses to this case 
is that maybe Aaron and his friends either were illegally poaching elk or someone else was illegally poaching elk and maybe had shot or yeah, shot and killed Aaron and tried to hide it and make it look weird. And they came back and placed the items, you know, when they knew that investigators weren't looking in that area to make it even a weirder situation and raise more questions to get any type of blame off of themselves. The poaching thing, though, I was a little confused about because from what I gathered, I was pretty sure the men had licenses to hunt elk. And I'm not, I mean, don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure, but it was stated that they went up there to hunt elk. So in theory, they would have had the licenses if they had told police that they were doing that. I would have to agree with that. I also think that if somebody had accidentally shot him while hunting for elk, they put in a whole lot of effort to cover that up because they would have had to walk that 11 miles from camp or are you saying that he did all that walking and dropping all the clothes and then they shot him over there? Is that what you meant? Or just when he was walking up to the cache or something. Or when he, because he went off a little bit, but. Because it would have been a lot of effort to take his body from there, the 11 miles, drop his stuff randomly. Like they would have had to put a lot of effort into setting that up, which I mean, isn't impossible. It's just. Right. I mean, if you're. From what I read, a lot of this theory comes around because I guess Montana, the like environmental officers there, they're pretty like straightforward. Like they mean business. If you're hunting or poaching without a license, they'll basically take all your stuff that you have that has to do with the hunt as far as to where some people's cars they drove to the location got taken along with really high fines. And so a lot of people were saying if someone else was poaching on top of, you know, accidentally murdering someone or maybe purposefully, if they came across them poaching, they're trying to really save their ass. What do you think? I I mean, I guess that's possible. I almost lean more towards the first theory, more that, you know, he was kind of just wandering around, kind of lost. But it doesn't I don't quite understand what made what would have made him so lost and confused. But I, I guess I don't know because I, I could kind of see them both. The one just seems like it would take a lot of effort without getting caught, especially. I mean, they were so close to like a road. They were so close to Charlie and Rebecca's property at one point. Like, it's just I feel like it would have been very, very risky to try to move him around so much. I don't know. I mean, it's still in the wilderness. Like, they're far enough away that. I don't think anyone would have seen them. I think, too, some suspicion came up with the weird timeline on when the friends actually ended up going back and reporting him missing. And the fact that where the mule supposedly bucked off their stuff was like a relatively flat area. So they find it weird that they would have lost his sleeping bag because it was kind of like, oh, he's going back up to the cache to get supplies because he lost his to get a sleeping bag. So some people point that out as like a little too convenient and maybe the friends had something to do with it and covered it up and did it in a weird way, which if that's true, worked (laughs) because everyone is so baffled by this case and we really don't have any concrete answers. 
I almost feel like the friends being involved is very likely with all the information that you've presented because it would explain all of the confusion that there is like him getting so lost and confused and the friends not quite having their story like it it doesn't quite make a lot of sense and then the stuff being everywhere there's just a lot of things that aren't adding up but if you put in the friends as the ones that did it it almost kind of makes the most sense out of all the things you've presented yeah you know i kind of lean towards that too but i will go ahead and say you know this is all just speculation and they're they've never been charged in the case so don't you know obviously go try to track them down and harass anybody because that's all just speculation but i thought it was worth mentioning because we're talking about theories and things that could happen and could have happened but overall i think the consensus is that this is a really weird case and it's one of the reasons it was featured on missing 411 because that's kind of what they focus on are these strange disappearances or murders or quote-unquote accidents but to this day we still don't have any new answers and no new information has come forward if you do have any information you can contact the Sweetgrass County Sheriff's Office at 406-932-5143. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.